2. The Legacy of the Forest Sages While much of the Vedic period remains tantalizingly shrouded in the mists of time, we do have a flickering glimpse of what lay at its core. This, as we have seen, was the ritual of the Yajna fire sacrifice, which, accompanied by recitation of the spiritually empowered cadences of the scriptures, was a skilled and intricate procedure to infuse the human realm with divine influence. The ritual was carried out by an hereditary priesthood, the Brahmins, who were the living libraries of a corpus of sacred knowledge that had been passed down from father to son, generation to generation, since earliest times. However, from perhaps 800 BC onwards, roughly the time of the compilation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we begin to see the codification of spiritual disciplines that were practiced by people who, like the Vratya brotherhoods before them, were not exclusively from priestly families. The demands made on the aspirants of this new way were no less stringent, however, for their goal was nothing less than a union, yoga, with the formless absolute that lies within and behind all forms and phenomena. These aspirants undertook the supreme quest, aiming beyond even the heavenly realms of the deities invoked by the fire offerings. Their concern was not merely to improve the conditions of everyday life, but to achieve complete liberation from its tedious insufficiencies and enervating limitations. At this early stage of Indian history, then, there is evidence of a yajna-yoga split, a division between a concern with accruing worldly benefits in daily life through the outer fire of sacrificial ritual, and, on the other hand, the search for direct experience of a higher reality through ascetic tapas, the inner fire of purification. The most celebrated of this new breed was the scion of a ruling family on the borders of modern Nepal, Prince Gautama Siddhartha, whom history knows simply as the Buddha, the one who has woken up. There were other masters who also sat under sacred trees and attained the coveted existential freedom. One, contemporary with the Buddha, was Mahavir, the great hero, last in the line of the twenty-four teachers of Jainism, known as the Tirthankaras, those who have crossed to the further shore. These and others like them are the archetypal exemplars of mind yoga, inspiring seekers after truth right up until today. Settling Down As the Vratyas had already found, Unmediated spiritual experience was encouraged by living close to nature, apart from householder society with all its time-consuming commitments. Gradually, itinerant spiritual wanderers coalesced into renunciate communities, which in time produced their own sacred literature, a subdivision of the Vedic corpus known as Aranyakas, the forest treatises. And, distilled from these, came yet a further group of esoteric teachings called the Upanishads. The word, derived from 
upa, near, ni, down, and sad, to sit or settle, came to mean a sitting down near the teacher to learn from him the hidden truth of life. The qualities quickened by such a spiritual apprenticeship are those that had been advocated centuries earlier in the Rig Veda. Spiritual heroism, manliness, devotion, respect, contentment, generosity, self-control, dispassion, and impartial friendliness. We shall meet all these again as ideal attributes in the later literature of yoga. The early Upanishads, especially the two oldest, the Brihadaranayaka and Chandogya, reiterate some Vedic ritual themes, but now internalized through meditative practices as the ascending stages of mind yoga. A favorite topic is the link between the inner and the outer worlds and the greater, all-inclusive reality that underpins both. What then is that which, dwelling within this little house, this lotus of the heart, is to be sought after, inquired about, realized? As large as the universe outside, even so large is the universe within the lotus of the heart. Within it are heaven and earth, the sun, the moon, the lightning, and all the stars. This greater reality is the immaterial absolute. All the universes inhere in this transcendental field of life, of which they are its temporary and non-binding modifications, and, for us humans, to realize the absolute is the purpose of our life. The classical Upanishads seek to educate us in this fact, how to approach, understand, and eventually unite with that one which is the source and essence of all. As the Maitri Upanishad tells us, he who is in the fire, and he who is in the heart, and he who is yonder in the sun, he is one. Although itself unmanifest, the Absolute is richly imaged in various ways, poetic, symbolic, metaphorical, and the practice of mind yoga is advanced as the direct route to its realization. To this end, a comfortable seated position, such as Padmasana, is recommended to settle the body for meditation, but nowhere amongst the mass of detailed and wide-ranging subjects dealt with in the Upanishads is there a sustained or systematic treatment of the many asanas, kriyas, or pranayamas that constitute modern postural practice. Instead, the Maitri advocates the means to inner union as the sixfold yoga, explaining the term, since one joins or unites, Yuj, in many ways, the breath and Om and the All, it is known as Yoga. Since it is the oneness of breath and mind and senses too, the renunciation of all becoming is called Yoga. The text stipulates the effects of the practice and its correct context. By the practice of Yoga one achieves contentment, the endurance of the pairs of opposites, and peacefulness. 
One should not make known this supreme secret to one who is not a son, not a student, or not at peace. So one should give it to one who is devoted to nothing else, who is endowed with all the virtues. It describes mind yoga as an internalized sacrifice. The one who knows this is a renouncer, a yogan, and a sacrificer to the self. Just as no one touches amorous women if they have entered an empty house, the one who does not touch sense objects is a renouncer, a yogan, and a sacrificer to the self. The Maitri is a relatively late Upanishad, but the third oldest, the Tayatiriya, also contains clear references to the ultimate reality beyond the mind that it calls Brahman. Realizing that from which all words turn back and thoughts can never reach, one knows the bliss of Brahman and fears no more. The word Brahman, the totality, comes from the verbal root Braha, meaning to grow, swell, expand, a derivation that alludes to the creativity inherent in the absolute source of all life. Several other passages in the Tayatiriya describe the blissful experience of this ultimate stratum, which is the inner self, which is the source of abiding joy. The Tayatiriya also contains descriptions of inner cosmologies that reoccur in medieval Hatha Yoga texts many centuries later, and of a five-fold hierarchy of selves, constituted of food, life-breath, mind, understanding, and bliss, that in later teachings, especially Vedanta, would become formalized as the sheaths, koshas, that veil the luminescence of the inner self. The purest exposition of the various modes of consciousness, a model that became axiomatic in later yoga systems, is to be found in the Mandukya Upanishad. With great clarity, this lucid work delineates the three varying states of consciousness, waking, dreaming and sleeping, in contradistinction to their substratum, which it simply calls the fourth, Turiya. This fourth lies beyond the volatile changeability of mind and matter, and is by contrast forever serene, timeless, and undisturbed. Other Upanishadic passages flesh out the contrast of the little ego-self, engaged in worldly experience and passing through its changes to this unattached fourth, the transpersonal self, which does nothing but witness the play of life. This equanimity, which was to become a central leitmotif of yoga, is charmingly described. Two birds of lovely plumage, inseparable friends, dwell on the self-same tree. One eats the fruits of pleasure and pain, the other just looks on. Of all the classical Upanishads, it is perhaps the Qatar that presents the fullest and most clearly realized account of mind yoga. By this stage, the term Dihana, which had earlier appeared in the Brahmana and Aranyaka portions of the Vedas, but with unclear meanings, 
has become accepted as the general term for introverted contemplation or meditation, and as such is recognized to be the key praxis of mind yoga and the path to self-knowledge. In a teaching of great beauty and profundity, couched in the form of a dialogue between a young seeker and Yama, the lord of death, the Kata exemplifies clearly the difference between the methodology of Indian wisdom systems and what is normally understood by the word philosophy. Whereas the Western philosopher of modern times has been a professional thinker who employs discursive thought in search of the perfect and irrefutable conceptual model, the Indian sage is always oriented to that truth, which can only be found when the mind goes beyond its habitual activity of thinking. As the Qatar says, Meditation enables them to go deeper and deeper into consciousness, from the world of words to the worlds of thought, then beyond thought to the wisdom that is the self. This psychic expansion, visually conceived of as either an ascent or descent, relies on a model of the human personality that will become the basis of all subsequent schools of yoga. It divides the individual awareness into a hierarchy of functional levels of increasing subtlety. The senses derive from objects of sense perception, sense objects from the mind, mind from intellect, and intellect from ego, ego from undifferentiated consciousness, and consciousness from Brahman. This hierarchy is clearly set out in the orthodox Hindu school of thought, known as Sankhya, the enumeration, which is attributed to the Vedic sage Karpila, who lived around 600 BC, but virtually the same is found in contemporary Buddhist and Jain sects that lie outside the fold of orthodoxy, as well as in other Upanishads. A later text, the Bhagavad Gita, is unequivocal about the connection between Karpila's theoretical model and the practical path of yoga. The ignorant and not the wise speak of Sankhya and yoga as different. He who sees Sankhya and yoga to be one, verily he sees. And perhaps a hundred years after these words were written, it was Sankhya that would form the psychological underpinning of Patanjali's magisterial Yoga Sutra, as we shall see in the next chapter. Among its many gems, the Kata provides a loosened definition of mind yoga. When the five senses are stilled, when the mind is stilled, when the intellect is stilled, that is called the highest state by the wise. They say yoga is this complete stillness in which one enters the unitive state, never to become separate again. If one is not established in this state, the sense of unity will come and go. The supremacy of this inner practice to outer ritual, which we have already heard about, is now, at times, stated in no uncertain terms. But verily, these rituals are unsafe boats. They cannot reach the farthest shore. 
The Vedic sciences are but the lower knowledge. The ignorant, who take them as the higher, sink once more into old age and death. Though they think themselves wise and learned, they are fools lost in ignorance, a prey to suffering, wandering without direction, like the blind led by the blind. These ignorant children, bound by duality, think their journey is complete. Blinded by attachment, they fail to see the truth. This disjunction became formalized in the doctrine of the two levels of knowledge, lower and higher, relative and absolute. That such trenchant criticisms of orthodoxy should themselves be welcomed into the scriptural canon and enjoy the highest respect therein is a wonderful tribute to the open-minded nature of early Indian religious inquiry. While other classical Upanishads contain discussions of the aforementioned subtle body that will feature so prominently in texts such as the medieval Hatha Yoga Pradipika, there is virtually no mention of the asanas, kriyas, bandhas and pranayamas we know so well today. All the earliest yogic philosophical material we have is interested only in the inner or spiritual aspects of the practice. To explain this lacuna, it has been argued that because physical yoga is such a hands-on discipline, requiring personal supervision between teacher and pupil, details of the postures would have been passed on orally and not committed to written texts. But while it is true that sacred knowledge was carefully guarded from casually inquisitive eyes, Indian authorities were always extraordinarily detailed classifiers of everything they considered important, from architecture and astrology to diet and sex. So, if there had been a generally recognized and authoritative body of body postures at this early stage, they would surely have been listed somewhere, either in great detail or at least in the mnemonic form of the sutra to be extrapolated by the teacher as living instruction when needed. Moreover, the inner realms of meditative awareness are certainly more finely nuanced than any manipulation of the body, and yet, as we have seen, the texts not only contain theoretical detail of these abstract states of awareness, but provide at least general information on the techniques employed to access them. So why then is there nothing similar on body work? The Yoga Upanishads We have now to move forward perhaps a thousand years to find a secondary category of texts given the respectful name of Upanishad, the group of about twenty works known as the Yoga Upanishads. These later works mark a shift in concern from the abstract absolute underlying all forms towards a preoccupation with psychic realms and the labyrinthine possibilities of introverted awareness. This, along with details of esoteric praxis, allies them to the early Hatha Yoga teachings we shall meet in Chapter 5. The most important of this collection are the five Bindu, seed, Upanishads, namely the Amrita, 
Amrita Nada, Nada, Dihana, and Tejo. These texts do mention physical postures, although these are not covered in any great detail, apart from the locks, bandhas. This is perhaps the first time that physical postures of varying complexity are said to have their own specific benefits in a way we might recognize from today's practice. This signifies a change from the teachings of the classical Upanishads, the Yoga Sutra, and the Bhagavad Gita, where the term asana refers only to seated postures whose value is confined to steadying the body for prolonged meditation. Such usage conformed to the sedentary character of the word itself as the primary meaning of asana, being derived from the verbal root as, to sit, to be, is seat or throne. Kings and Saints In hierarchical human societies, stasis often connotes status, the best example being the king, who sits happily on his throne while his courtiers and subjects scurry around energetically doing his bidding. In the Indian religious context, however, the acme of such social standing, or rather sitting, was the enlightened yogi, the spiritual monarch, who, ruling through renunciation rather than possession, was fit to be addressed as Maharaj, the great king. Stationed serenely under his tree, such a sage was the unattached lord of all he surveyed, and more. Liberated from the tedium of gross physical action, he realized all his desires through the pellucid power of thought alone. Doing nothing, he accomplished everything. As a living metaphor of his union with the unmoving self of all, such a yogi often went nowhere while the world came to him. A popular subject in Indian art, right from its beginnings in the carvings and frescoes of the Buddhist rock-cut sanctuaries, is the king kneeling low before the yogi in his forest hermitage. The oldest Upanishad, the Brihadara Nayaka, tells us the archetype of such a regal supplicant was Janaka, the ruler of Videha and father-in-law of Lord Rama, who studied with the famous holy man, Yajna Valyakya. A later text lords Janaka for being prepared to give up his entire kingdom in exchange for the right to receive spiritual instruction from a yogi called Ashtavakra. The Srimad Bhagavatam, the classic text of Krishna devotion, and the first Purana to be translated into a European language, was dictated by the sage Shukdeva to the king Parikshit. The monarch was so fixed in his devotion to receive sacred knowledge that he is said to have sat unmoving for seven days without food or water. The wisdom of stasis is evident in other contexts. In the classic work on statecraft, Kautilya's Artashastra, the word asana describes the strategy of biding one's time and making no move in any direction, sitting on the fence. 
From the time of the later Yoga Upanishads onwards, however, there was a shift, and it became more common to use asana to describe a position adopted not only in yoga, but also in more varied and dynamic contexts. These include wrestling, armed combat, and sexual congress. The earliest non-seated asanas are listed in assorted texts from the 10th century as the peacock, Mayurasana, the cockerel, Kukutasana, and the tortoise, Kurmasana. But even then, echoing the spiritual slant of earlier scriptures, the well-known Shavasana, or corpse pose, was still construed as a Samketa, or secret technique of mind yoga, rather than the simple physical relaxation taught in so many yoga sequences today. And significantly, nowhere in any of these yoga Upanishads is there a mention of the dynamic sequence that has become the signature favorite of much modern postural practice, the salute to the sun, Surya Namaskar. Overall, then, the seers of these early yoga scriptures were clearly far less interested in asana postures than in mantra meditation, breathing exercises, pranayama, and the subtle body, linga sharira, with its conduits, nadis, of the life energy, prana, and energetic nodes, chakras. Much attention is paid to kundalini, the cosmic evolutionary force dormant in the individual nervous system and locked in at the base of the spine awaiting arousal. And finally, alongside the recondite descriptions of subtle physiology, there is also mention of the ultimate goal of yogic endeavor, prolonged experience of the mind's being settled in meditative absorption, samadhi, and its eventual immersion in the Absolute Self. Every other practice these texts maintain, be it outer or inner, is but a preparation for this ultimate state of introversion, and not an end in itself. Such, at least, was the stated ideal. In practice, though, as we shall see, this spiritual apotheosis appears to have remained a distant aspiration, which gave way to a more seductive interest, the cultivation of supernormal powers that allow the yogi's awareness to play around in ways that transcend the mundane limitations of time and space. All in all, the yoga Upanishads demonstrate a rich, if inconsistent, amalgam of teachings that range from classical purity to Baroque cosmologies, from worship of deities to Vedantic non-dualism. The typical academic view is that the coexistence of such divergent themes proves that ideas from different and often antagonistic philosophical schools were somehow lumped together any old how in texts so eclectic that their integrity becomes compromised by their contradictions. Some practitioners, however, take a different angle. They see such assorted topics as representing the various and successive stages of a long pilgrimage of transformation, stations in an ongoing and progressive journey of self-transcendence. 
As the mind moves beyond the limits of a selfhood defined by attachment to the body, traveling through the subtle and causal levels of the psyche to the transcendental source of all, it will experience many different perspectives, many variant realities. Each of them is a valid understanding, appropriate to the stage attained, but it is only provisional, as each petal of the lotus must unfurl before the blossoming of full enlightenment is possible. One authority who took this approach was the revered 15th century textual commentator, Vijnana Bhikshu, to whom the perspectives of Sankhya, Yoga and Vedanta were sequential stages on the journey rather than irreconcilable destinations. Other seers, ancient and modern, have concurred, but Western scholarship, forever sharpening its Occam's razor, has tended to dismiss the idea.